Blog Talk Radio. The Franciscan Friars of the Atonement present the Ave Maria Hour. Hello, this is Father Bob Warren of the Franciscan Friars of the Atonement. Thank you for listening to this rebroadcast of the Ave Maria Hour radio show. The Friars' popular Ave Maria Hour was first brought to the radio airwaves in 1939, recorded in New York City and on the mountainside grounds at Graymore, a home in Garrison, New York. These timeless classic stories of the Bible and the lives of the saints came to life each week through dramatic reenactment by professional actors and actresses. You know, friends, Christ once said, do not hide your treasure under a bushel. In saying this, he meant share your gifts, share your talents. The Friars of the Atonement feel the message in these broadcasts remains as powerful and timely as when they were originally aired, and we are so happy to be able to share them with you today. To learn more about the missions and ministries of the Friars of the Atonement, I invite you to visit our website, www.atonementfriars.org. In the meantime, sit back and enjoy this rebroadcast of the Ave Maria Hour. St. Catherine de Ricci. Permit me to introduce myself, and at the same time to clear up a misconception regarding my office. Popularly, I am known as the Devil's Advocate. My official title is Promoter of the Faith, and it is my duty to point out defects in the evidence upon which a demand for beatification or canonization rests, or in the character of the person for whom the honor is sought. Before the Congregation of Rites, I am the relentless critic who picks flaws in the argument and testimony, not to provoke controversy, but to arrive at the truth. I held this important office in 1614, when the first juridical examination of witnesses took place, in connection with the beatification of Catherine de Ricci, prioress of the convent of St. Vincent at Prato. The printed summary of the evidence in favor of her cause was voluminous. Of course, I had examined it thoroughly, but I was most interested in the manner the postulator interpreted the evidence. If it please the congregation, I will briefly summarize the life of the prioress, Catherine de Ricci. She was born in 1522 and was baptized Alexandrina and took the name of Catherine at the age of 13 with her religious clothing in the Dominican convent of St. Vincent at Prato. Here for two years she suffered agonizing pain, which remedies only intensified. She sanctified her sufferings by exemplary patience, which she derived in great part from constant meditation on the passion of Christ. If I may interrupt, the child was 15 at the time? Yes, 15 and a few months. Mm -hmm. Therefore, impressionable? We can assume that. 
But the cause of Catherine Day Ricci is based on experiences covering her entire life, not only when she was immature. Ah, quite true. I emphasize the point now that the congregation may keep it in mind as a possible explanation of events which will come later in the examination. When she was 20, uh, to be exact, in April 1542, there occurred the event which I will not detail now, but leave to the witnesses. Do you refer to the ring or to the reenactment of the passion? Both. Since the appearance of the ring marked the beginning of the ecstasies. Very well. To show that Catherine was endowed with special gifts, the record will reveal that she was made novice mistress at an early age, then sub-prioress, and when she was only 30, appointed prioress for life. Lest we permit the mystical, and I might say miraculous, to overshadow her material accomplishments, allow me to say at this point that Catherine de Ricci was a good administrator and was never happier uh, Surely than... the postulator of the cause is not suggesting rapid promotion and good housekeeping as criteria of saintliness. Is the learned promoter of the faith suggesting that saintliness is completely divorced from the ability to get along with subordinates? I suggest you may be jumping to conclusions when, so early in the cause, you start using such terms as miraculous and saint. The congregation of rites will decide if a miracle has taken place, not you or I. Very true, very true. Please permit me then to introduce the evidence to the congregation. Catherine de Ricci died in 1590 at the age of 68. Her ecstasies began, as we have noted, in 1542. It is now 24 years after her death. Consequently, there are but few eyewitnesses to the events upon which her cause is based. However, there are a few living witnesses, and these, along with the written documents I shall present, will, I am sure, suffice. I now call on Sister Pauline to give her testimony. Uh, be seated, please. How long did you know the prioress, Catherine? From 1552, when I entered the convent, until she died. You witnessed her when she was in ecstasy? Many times. Uh, please, tell the congregation about the first time you saw her in ecstasy. I was 16 at the time, and I had heard, as indeed had the entire countryside, about the remarkable prioress of St. Vincent's. I had not been there long when Sister Mary Magdalene, who was the special friend and nurse of very Reverend Mother Prioress, called us all together and addressed us. I've asked you here to prepare you for what you will see. There is some truth in the stories you've heard before entering St. Vincent's, but more that is false. Here's what will happen beginning on Thursday. Mother Prioress will lose consciousness at noon and come to herself 28 hours later at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon. During that time, she will enact the scenes of our Savior's passion. For instance, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, Mother Catherine will hold out her hands, even as he did, to be bound. You will see her in the main hall leading to the chapel. 
She will be bent over as if she were carrying the cross. You must not be alarmed at what you may see, nor must you do anything that will interfere with her contemplation. Everything Sister Mary Magdalene said, her warnings and instructions were forgotten that day I first saw her. I was coming from the chapel where I'd gone to pray that the manifestations should cease. Oh, please, tell the congregation why you did that. Well, Mother Prioress had requested it. You mean she herself wanted these manifestations to cease? Yes. The composure of our community was interfered with and greatly inconvenienced. In what way? At all hours, day and night, people knocked at the door and asked to see Mother Catherine. Some were merely curious. Others wanted her intercession to cure illness. Some begged for a snip of cloth from her habit. Did the manifestations come to an end? Yes, in 1554, after many earnest prayers. You were about to tell us the first time you witnessed the ecstasy. Coming from the chapel, I saw her. She was bent over as if she were carrying a heavy weight on her back. She staggered from one side of the hall to the other. Her face, it was twisted in agony, and about her forehead were livid red marks, and here and there a bead of blood. I was numb with terror. Everything Sister Mary Magdalene had told us was forgotten. The walls faded, and it seemed as if I was on the street of Jerusalem. Then she stumbled and fell almost at my feet. I knelt down to help her as she raised herself on hands and knees. She looked at me, and it was evident she was living in another world. It seemed her lips were trying to form a word, and then I screamed, Mother! Mother! And then I fainted. When I regained consciousness, I was in my cell, and Sister Mary Magdalene was bending over me. Didn't I prepare you for this? I forgot everything when I saw her. The pain, sadness in her eyes. Oh, Sister Mary, she must have felt every lash of the whip. How can she suffer like this week after week? It's a mystery which we must not question but accept until such time as God heeds our prayers. For these hours, it seems, Mother is spiritually with Christ. She suffers no bodily harm. And by Friday, we'll be with us again as usual. But the marks on her forehead, the stigmata, that will remain. And from time to time, you will see the marks on her hands and forehead. All these things I've told you before. Please remember them in the future. You witnessed the stigmata? Yes. How did they appear to you? I always after saw the wound marks shining with so brilliant a light it dazzled me. I have no more questions at this time. Uh, perhaps the promoter of the fate would like to question you. What point in questioning her? Obviously the sister was telling the truth as she saw it. And in the mountain of documents her story was repeated many times. The ecstasies, the stations of the cross, the stigmata. With certain exceptions it was all the same. I knew, and the postulator knew, Catherine de Ricci's cause 
hinged on the testimony surrounding the ring. And if the congregation of rites accepted that, the cause was ended in her favor. However, with the stigmata as with the ring, there were conflicting statements, and it was clearly my duty to point these out. So I decided to question. The elderly sister was looking at me with hostile eyes, as if I were indeed the devil's advocate, sent to rob her beloved prioress of deserving sainthood. Sister, you have just testified that the stigmata appeared to you in a very dazzling light. Yes. A dazzling light. Now, that means to have the vision confused by an excess of light. I was not confused. I saw the very brilliant light. It came from the wound. But looking into a dazzling light, how would you know whether or not it came from the wound? I know it came from the wound. But how did you know? It shone from the spots where other sisters saw the wounds. But they didn't see the light. No. Some of the sisters saw only healed up wounds, red and swollen, with a black spot in the center. And still others saw the hands pierced through and bleeding. That is so. Then the community divides into three groups, each of which saw the wounds differently. It is true not all saw alike. Can you offer any explanation why they did not see alike? No. But surely you must have discussed it among yourselves. Yes, there was considerable discussion. And not a single sister offered an explanation. The humble servants of God accept his mysteries without seeking explanations. Well answered, sister. Uh, no doubt it satisfies the sponsor of the cause, but the question before us is whether what he so willingly accepts as a mystery has a natural explanation. Perhaps the promoter would like to suggest the natural explanation for the stigmata. If so, I'm most anxious to hear it. Well, my function is to put the questions, not to supply the answers. Just what question are you putting? How do you account for the fact that the nuns saw the manifestations in three different ways? When we take up the evidence concerning the ring, where we have what you would call conflicting testimony of the same nature, I will offer an explanation. And when do you propose to take up the ring episode? Since it's late in the day and the testimony will take considerable time, I would respectfully request of the congregation that it wait until tomorrow morning. I was glad for the adjournment. It gave me a chance to review the evidence, most of which was in documentary form, all from people who profoundly believed that Catherine de Ricci had been chosen by God for sainthood, so there was not a single word in her disfavor. This in itself, to me, was a possible flaw in her cause. Enthusiasts for a cause are inclined to forget or excuse the lapses of their nominee. As the cause stood, there was nothing unfavorable to Mother Catherine. Tomorrow, the testimony might be different. If it please the congregation, I will now take up the testimony of the espousal ring. Uh, before you do that, may I be permitted to ask a few questions of Sister Pauline? Most certainly. Let us go back, Sister, to the 28-hour ecstasy. Was Mother Catherine unconscious of her surroundings every moment of this time? No. Please explain. Holy communion was brought to her in the morning and she became sufficiently conscious of the outer world to receive it with intense devotion. Immediately afterwards, she became entranced and 
resumed her contemplation of scenes of the passion at exactly the point where she had left off. Was she conscious of any other time? Not regularly, but occasionally she would, in, in the midst of her ecstasy, call out to the sisters standing about and urge them to take lessons from Christ's sufferings and to strive for perfection. Thank you, sister. I merely wanted to establish that at least during some moments of the trance, Mother Catherine was aware that the eyes of the community were on her. No more questions. Now, as to the ring. In 1542, Catherine was 20 years old. On Easter Day of that year, our Savior drew from his finger a gleaming ring and placed it upon the forefinger of her left hand, saying, My daughter, receive this ring as pledge and proof that thou dost now and ever shalt belong to me. In support of this, I offer two written depositions, one by the Dominican Father Neri, dated 1549, that is, seven years after the mystic espousals, and the other consists of notes made by Sister Mary Magdalene, Catherine's closest friend and her nurse. I am sure the promoter of the faith is familiar with these documents. Quite. He states that within a fortnight of Easter, the true ring, that is the ring of gold and its diamond, was seen by three very holy sisters at different times. And each sister was over 45 years of age. May we have the names of the three sisters? Sister Potentiana of Florence, Sister Mary Magdalene of Prato, and Sister Aurelia. Is this the same Sister Mary Magdalene who was friend and nurse? Same. Her notes will be introduced at the proper time. Now we must point out to the congregation that though this deposition is sent by Father Neri, he himself did not make the investigation. That is true. He wrote the superiors of the province to investigate, and this is their report to him. Now will you please explain the meaning of what Father Neri calls the true ring? Since three of the sisters had seen the gold and diamond ring, but others had not, Catherine Superior requested her to ask a favor of our Lord that all the sisters see the ring. And did they? I quote Father Neri. All the sisters saw the ring, or at least a counterfeit presentment of it, in this sense that for three days, continuously of Easter week, all the sisters saw on the forefinger of the left hand, and in the place where Mother Catherine said the ring was, a red diamond-shaped mark, and a red circle around the finger in place of the ring. In short, they did not see, let us say, the true ring. No. However, Mother Catherine never saw anything but the ring of gold with its diamond. So we have the same conflict of testimony we had regarding the stigmata. It would seem so. And for which you were to offer an explanation. One possibility is that the deserving saw more than the less deserving, the curious, nothing at all. Ah, perhaps. But could you be specific? Many said the reddening of the finger was due to paint or dye. The governor of the city ordered Catherine to come to the church so that he might see the red circle for himself. In his presence, all traces of it vanished, though immediately after leaving him, it reappeared and she showed it to the nuns. Then it is your contention that what the various nuns and others saw depended upon the holiness of the particular witness? I suggested as a possibility... And I would like to remind the promoter that in spite of the conflicting testimony, all the nuns saw something on the ring finger that was not there before Easter. It could well be that Christ singled out certain of them to see the true ring 
and others the sign of it, and Mother Catherine to never see anything but the true ring. And what did Sister Mary Magdalene witness as revealed in her notes? I quote, Three days after Easter, there was a red circle around Catherine's finger, which looked as if a red coral ring had been buried in the flesh. You would agree that nowhere in her notes does she ever mention that she saw the golden diamond of the true ring that Mother Catherine said was present. She does not mention it true. Yet in the deposition of Father Mary, she is listed as one of the three very holy nuns who saw the true ring. That is so. And yet this Sister Mary Magdalene was her closest friend and her nurse. That is so. A rather glaring discrepancy, it seems to me. I would like to recall Sister Pauline to the stand. Uh, Sister Pauline, what can you tell us about the character of Sister Mary Magdalene and her relationship to the Mother Prioress? Sister Mary Magdalene was a devout woman with a lot of common sense, and she bore a great love for Mother Catherine. She, as were the rest of us, was greatly disturbed by the mysterious events which had taken place. Did she speak of her concern to you? Not at the time. It was some years later I learned from her own lips that she was frightened lest Mother Catherine had become the dupe of the devil. What did she do about it? She went to her confessor. Together they made many experiments with dyes and pigments in an effort to reproduce the color seen on Mother's finger. Were they able to do this? Nothing that in the least resembled it. Obviously, Sister Mary Magdalene had doubts about the authenticity of the ring. She expressed them frankly to Mother Catherine, telling her these mysterious manifestations were dangerous to humility and were contrary to the spirit and traditions of the convent. She asked for permission to rid Mother of the mark. Did Mother Catherine agree? Most willingly. She blamed herself had asked pardon for causing so much trouble in the community. She told Sister Mary Magdalene she might do anything she wished to remove the ring. The ring or the marks of the ring? Mother saw only the gold and the diamond. Many times, she said, I have to take it on faith you see simply the red mark, for that is not what I see. How did Sister Mary Magdalene try to remove the mark? First, she put her tongue to it to see if it had taste. And then the finger was steeped in warm water and washed with soap. And what was the effect? There was none. The marks remained. And at certain times, they were clearly visible to all members of the community. No more questions. I am content to rest my cause on the evidence. In regard to what at first glance might seem a discrepancy, I must remind all that we are dealing with the mysterious, the unknown, that which is closed to prying logic and frustrating to scientific demonstration. If man rejects that which cannot be explained to the satisfaction of his own limited powers of comprehension and imagination, he finally rejects Christ himself. Remember, too, I am pleading Catherine de Ricci's cause for beatification, not sainthood. Let her be that now. If in the years to come the church finds time reflects her holiness and glory, then someone will stand where I stand now and plead her saintly cause. What was the truth? That 
truth it was my duty to reveal by my criticism of the testimony. In pointing out that witnesses did not agree, I had only elucidated the obvious. All the nuns had seen manifestations of one kind or another. Rudimentary tests failed to remove the marks on Catherine's finger. It was evident that Mother Catherine saw only the true ring, for she had said, I have to take it on faith when you tell me you see nothing but a red mark. She took the denial of the true ring on faith. It came to me of a sudden. I reversed the thought. We must take it on faith that Catherine saw the true ring. Does the promoter wish to question the witness? The voice seemed to come from afar as I was deep in my own thoughts. Though it was not my province to pass on the merits of her cause, I could not help but ask myself if I would vote for beatification. If I would, there was not much point in further questions. Do you wish to question? Uh, oh, I... I beg your pardon. I, I was just thinking of... of... No. No postulator. No questions. Catherine de' Ricci was beatified after the hearing. Time did reflect her glory and holiness, and further investigation, searching the records, and tabulation of mysteries accomplished in her name caused another postulator and devil's advocate to face each other in the Congregation of Rites, some 150 years after her death. Again, there were the searching questions regarding the ring, the failure of witnesses to agree. The devil's advocate was Cardinal Prosper Lambertini, who some years later as Pope Benedict XIV announced to the world, I proclaim that Catherine de Ricci has been canonized a saint of the church. listening to this rebroadcast of the Ave Maria Hour, brought to you by the Franciscan Friars of the Atonement. For over 110 years, the Friars have devoted themselves to fulfilling St. Francis' prayer, to heal wounds, to unite what has fallen apart, and to bring home those who have lost their way. We work for Christian unity and interreligious understanding. We provide respite at our retreat center at Greymoor for those in need of spiritual renewal. We staff parishes throughout the world, serve as chaplains for colleges, hospitals, and prisons. We care for the ill through hospice work, ministry to those with HIV AIDS. We also shelter the homeless and provide treatment and services for those suffering from alcoholism and drug addiction. If you would like to be included in our prayer list, participate in special St. Anthony Novenas, and or visit St. Anthony Shrine, Graymore. Attend a retreat, learn more about our Ave Maria Hour productions, or simply make a donation to assist us in fulfilling St. Francis' prayer to help those in need. Please visit our website at atonementfriars.org or email me at avemaria at atonementfriars.org. You can write to me, Father Bob, Friars of the Atonement, Graymore. 
Post Office Box 300, Garrison, New York, 10524. And so, in closing, I ask for the blessing of God upon you and those you love. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he look upon you with kindness and give you his peace. Amen.